Hello and welcome to Fashion as a Force for Good, a podcast brought to you by Smartworks. This is the charity that uses the power of clothing and coaching to help unemployed women get the job and transform their lives. In the 10 years Smartworks has been running, we have learned that when a woman looks and feels her best, she can change her life. I'm your host, Tiffany Dark, and every week I'll be talking to a new guest about the power of clothing, their relationship with fashion, and the transformative role clothes have played at key moments in their lives and careers. Time to find out whose wardrobe doors were opening this week. Joe Elvin is a writer, broadcaster, and award-winning magazine editor with over 20 years' experience at titles like Glamour and the Mail on Sunday's You magazine. But then, last year, she surprised us by unusually making a midlife switch to an entirely different sector when she was appointed CEO of Children with Cancer UK. Of all the things Joe does, I'm most excited to ask her about hashtag week on a wall, where she shares her planning for the week's outfits. Oh, to be that organised. She also started the brilliant Clothes My Husband Hates tag in 2016, where she shares her husband's humorous quips about the, shall we say, louder items in her wardrobe. Jo is a wonderful talker and I can't wait to sit down with her. Jo! Thank you so much for coming today. I am so Pleasure. excited to talk to you. I, I hope it gives your day gets more exciting. But, but <laughs> thank you. Thank you. No, you are the most fantastic conversationalist. And of course, we have lots in common because uh, over the years we've trod the journalism beat. Yes, and, indeed. Um, and it's been so wonderful to watch your career and your progress and everything that you have been doing then and since. And, and we'll get more into that. But... Now I get to ask the questions. Okay. <laughs> yep. Far away. So I'm curious, how did you start out? Did you want to be in fashion or did you want to be a journalist? I started out um, as a writer and I wanted to be, I wanted to work on magazines. I, I knew from a young age that I, you know, I was, I did well at school in subjects like writing and, and history and all of that stuff. And I enjoyed writing. Um, and I also um, realized I started b becoming obsessed with British magazines. I'm from Australia, grew up in Sydney. And I started realizing that um, people were, it was people were getting paid to hang out with George Michael and Spandau Ballet and all the big 80 stars at the time. I was like, God, that's a job. <laughs> so that's like, that was a light bulb moment for me. It's like, I want to work in magazines. That's what I want to do. So, um, while I was at university doing a communications degree, I just started cold calling loads of magazines and managed to get some work experience on the big teenage Bible of the day called Dolly magazine. And um, I started interning there. And then one day I turned up and they'd fired the whole features team. Oh, no. Why? Some sort of attempted coup against the incumbent editor. Sounds familiar. Yeah, and that didn't go very well for them. And out of desperation, they sort of like threw me at a desk and I started writing. And then not long after that, they offered me a job. So I left university to take the job. And you were off. Yeah. And what did you, did you get to meet your your, your pop star straight away? How did it work out? Um, I think, well, one of my first interviews I did was Jason Donovan. But my very first interview was Danny Minogue. I'd say over the years... 
that started to be the thing out of all the great things that, that you get to do when you work on magazines. It's not that I didn't like it, but that was the thing that actually ironically ended up least exciting me about what it was that I got to do. Yes, chasing celebrities, <laughs> yeah. asking if they'd be on your cover and yeah. trying to fix it. Yeah. yeah, and, you know, I mean, most of them are great and they're there to do a job, but then, you know, you do have the odd one who won't come out of the dressing room or, you know, just hates all the clothes on the shoot. You know, so that quite often I, I got to understand that it was a very, very stressful yes. day. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yeah. So I, whenever I think of your magazines and, and you have been – at the helm of some really great moments in magazines. I always think of fashion. And I think that you were in the chair when a lot of the great democratization of fashion took place. Um, and actually you and your magazines demystified the codes of fashion very successfully. Mm. So I always think of you in terms of like a sort of fashion editor as opposed to a celebrity editor, although obviously I know you're both. So when did you, at what point did you realize that fashion was important for magazines and for a sense of identity? Oh, I think I've always known that. I think that I, when I was a kid and I didn't really have much body confidence or fashion confidence, and I I really did use magazines as a guide in that way when I was a kid. And I think I understood um, that because it wasn't my comfort zone and my confidence zone, I think I understood how many many other readers would be feeling about that so I think that glamour was definitely a really key part of what you call the democratization of fashion because it was aimed at a mass market but it was a mass market magazine done by an upmarket publishing company so we were much more Condé Nast yeah so we were much we're in a great position where the fashion brands, because of the relationships they had with Condé Nast, were willing to lend us the clothes that if I'd been working at another mass market magazine for another company, they probably wouldn't have. So we were able to show readers and a lot of those designers actually in those advertisers that there's a way to blend high and low in a way that makes everybody happy and just and, and gives more people more confidence and more access to fashion. Yeah, absolutely. And it was also a kind of at that time where it was still possible to save up for a designer handbag, you know. Yes. Do you remember like Mulberry, you could actually buy. Well, I wrote about this not that long ago in the mail. It was like, you know, they part of their huge success back in the noughties was that a designer handbag was five, six hundred pounds. So it's a lot of money, but it was like you say, it was an attainable savings goal, whereas now it seems like the tinier the handbag, the more zeros on the yeah. thing. And I just, I've lost interest. I just can't, Their price I can't justify it. Yeah. yeah. So, and and so you were very clever about putting together outfits. I mean, I remember the way that you laid out the pages. It was like, oh, here's the handbag, here's the, you know. And, and it was the time also when all those high street stores were reaching up as well. Yes. And doing designer collaborations. What do you remember about that time? It's a bit of a blur, but... I mean, I, you know, I did that job for 17 years at Glamour and I don't know, it was just incredible fun. It just really was because I couldn't believe you're always so nervous as an editor. You know, you're always feeling like you're only as good as the next issue. You're only as good as the next cover. You're only as good as the sales figures. And it was just this wild ride where there was definitely a time where we felt like we couldn't do anything wrong. And that was, you know, I never 
quite was able to relax with that. I wish I'd enjoyed it more in the moment, but I'm always, I was always thinking of the next thing. That's great. That sales figure was great, but what about next month? But it was, it was a really fun time in that feminism had come so far so that we had this incredible audience of women who were independent and wanted to forge their own way and felt they could forge their own way. But it was also mixed with the kind of feminism and independence that was being portrayed to us on things like Sex and the City. So there was fun and frivolity to be had alongside taking yourself seriously and taking your place in the world. And that was a really fun thing to communicate through the pages. And you were living it as well. I was. And, you know, you know, like, as you say, we would go to the fashion shows and all that sort of stuff and, you know, getting to wear nice outfits to work and all that. That's all very fun. But I, I took that job so seriously that I was I feel like I just worked all the time. And do you and you remember it as being quite stressful. How do you deal with stress? It varies. Um, definitely, it, it helps a lot to have discovered exercise in my 30s. That has an amazing um an amazing effect on my overall well-being and I think I share my problems <laughs> if I make my stress your stress as well like no I just I do I I reach out and I sort of like make sure I've got teams around me who are really helpful and supportive and uh, my husband's amazing at sort of like sharing the load at home so it's about connecting with people I think that's how I deal with stress yeah mm. because being the leader of a team is really hard, isn't yeah. it? Because people tend to pass their own anxieties up the ladder, don't they? Yeah, and, and I think when you're a boss, I think it's very, very difficult for people to see you as a flawed human being as well. So, you know, so I'm bringing my emotions to it as well. And you have to try and put that aside and you have to understand that it's almost like sometimes it's almost like acting is that you have to project the mood that you want in an office and I think that it's a lot of work to manage I think what was it I think glamour at its height we were sort of I was managing about 35 people so yeah it's a lot yeah, yeah. Mm. and when you were looking because we're at smart works this is about getting women into the workplace when you were looking for people to come and join your team mm. what were the qualities that really attracted you to your team members and, and how did you like them to present themselves and show up I think it, it depends on what the position is but generally speaking when I ask people questions in in job interviews I'm looking for that spark of sincerity about what it is that they're really interested in. Why are you interested in this job? What is it that you want to learn? What is it about your personality that you think is why you'd be the right person here? I feel like I'm not making much sense, but it's like, it, it's just, I'm just looking for that. It, it's almost like, it sounds ridiculous, like an it factor thing. I'm just looking for that spark in somebody that I think they can bring something of their own personality. And in a really calculated way, I'm always looking for, I know what I'm good at. I know what this person over here is good at. So what we need is someone who's good at that. So you're always looking to sort of like balance people's skills as well. Mm. And I think a really good way to get over nerves about job interviews as well is to think, you know, to think about what is it that I want to get out of this job? What is it that I really think I'd be, I would look forward to? And I think if you can get in that frame of mind, you're going to go into that job interview presenting somebody curious and excited rather than going in thinking, what if they hate me? What if they don't like me? If you start, if you have a moment and think, well, what do I want about this? Why, why do I want this job? I think it would just help your mindset 
quite a lot in that way. Because I'd say 99% of people who are interviewing you for jobs, they want to give you the chance to present your best self. They're not looking to trip you up or to make you feel crap in an interview. They want to see your best version of yourself. So I think that it's it's rare that you'll find someone who you meet in a job interview who wants to put you on the back foot or make you feel nervous. Yeah, mm. I'm going to ask you this because you are a fashion editor or have been a fashion editor. Did you ever judge people by what they were wearing? I mean, probably. I'm one of those people, I'm much more concerned with what, what I'm wearing <laughs> what you're wearing. Um, I'm really obsessed with like, you know, if, if I look okay or not. I suppose it's, it's just the basic things like if you've turned up for a job interview and it re- you haven't combed your hair and you've got a food stain or something like that, then then I would think, hmm, is this person like doesn't re- doesn't care at all what I think about how they look. But story that I, I don't even know if it's true or not. There's this story that goes around about Anna Winter where somebody like got really obsessed with what to wear to a job interview with her. And she looked them up and down and said, hmm, matchy, matchy. Hillary. Oh. <laughs> And I don't know if that's true or not. I genuinely don't think I've ever looked at someone in a job interview and thought, oh, my God, I hate what she's wearing. It's it's not that. It's just more the basics of, you know, I just need you to look like you've cared enough to make an effort. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm interested that you just said you care more about what you look like. And And you mentioned earlier that, you know, you felt like you didn't fit in with what you were wearing. So it's just, does those two things follow? Do you think that's why you've ended up being successful in fashion? Is that you've you've made that your career? I don't know. Um, I, I mean, God, I remember the first few times I had to go to the fashion shows because Glamour was the first job I had where I had to do that. I'd edited many other magazines before. And um, just set the scene a little bit about the fashion shows and being there as an editor. What do you have to do? I just, it, it honestly, for me, it just felt like high school all over again at first. You know, so you sit in the front row. It, it, it genuinely had not occurred to me before I started doing them how much everybody cares about what everybody in the audience is wearing. It's crazy because I thought we were there to look at the clothes on the catwalk. But actually, you end up spending an enormous amount of time also looking at what everybody else is wearing. And I grew to really enjoy that and love sort of like seeing how people dress and express themselves. But for somebody who didn't see themselves as a fashion native, it was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. And I think if you, I don't know if there are any photos, but if you looked back at my very first fashion shows, I would be wearing a black trouser suit and a t-shirt because that was like, that just felt safe. That felt like, you know, no one's going to say, Oh my God, what's she wearing? They might think, well, that's a bit boring, but no one, you know, I haven't got anything wrong technically. And I don't know, I I think that my confidence grew over the years, but it took a long time. And I think I'd still, if I was going to a fashion show tomorrow, I'd still probably get a bit anxious about what to wear. Do you still feel like an outsider? Yeah, yes. And I think particularly when you work at, at magazines like Glamour, for some people in the fashion industry, you know, the massive numbers that we sold and the mainstreamness of it. I know that's not a word, but that is was just revolting. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like some some people are like, oh God, no, we don't want glamour at our show. Do you know what I mean? So I never felt like an absolute established fashion 
player at all. Probably what made you a very good journalist. Um, I think it probably made me a very empathic editor when it, particularly when it came to fashion. I always, I used to feel like, you know, I had no business telling fashion directors what to do. But then I realized actually I'm coming at it as a pure reader. So actually it's all right if I say, but who is going to wear that? Do you know what I mean? So, so, you know, it's actually fine for me to say that because I'm I'm the reader. So, yeah. Now, Joe, we did ask you to bring something in today that meant oh, something no, to I you. I failed my homework. Well, no, no, but I kind of love that you didn't have it to bring it in. So tell yeah. us the story behind what you were going to bring in. It's, it's definitely the dress that I think completely shifted my own self-confidence and my and my own attitude to fashion. I was 32, if you can believe it, before I had any fashion or real any sort of body confidence I would say I grew up very very thin like so thin that I got teased like incredible like, all through school like really bullied for it and it's like this massively obese girl who I used to feel quite sorry for because she used to get teased as well but she said to me oh I mean I'd rather look like me than like you I've written lots on my body image travails so I spent my teens and 20s hiding in clothes like always baggy always oversized with this mistaken belief that if I wore jeans that were too big I'd look a bit bigger and my legs wouldn't look so praying mantis I've still got quite praying mantis legs but <laughs> Your um, legs look wonderful well bless you but you know you know and so by the, by the time I was in my 30s I had this wonderful job at Glamour which I got from being I guess a successful editor on other titles not for my fashion prowess and um I remember it was I was going to an award show where I was up for a magazine award and our style director, as she was called at the time, Charlotte Ann Fiddler, basically practically bullied me into wearing um, a, a very tight fitting black Dolce & Gabbana dress. It had like a corseted waist, like a cowl neck, no sleeves, very, very tight pencil skirt just below the knee. And I put it on and everyone in the office was like, Please wear that. Please don't wear another fucking trouser suit, please. Sorry for my language. You know, like, and, and I was like, okay. But I felt, Tiffany, I felt so exposed in, it was just so out of my comfort zone, which it might not sound, it was just a black dress. The compliments I got that night and, the, and people just treated me differently wearing that dress. And it was the first time I thought, maybe you are a lunatic and maybe your body is okay. Do you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. so, and that, and that kind of changed everything for me. So I don't have it anymore because it got too small and I sold it. No, but <laughs> great. You yeah. gave it another life, yeah. which is yeah. always what you But it was do. a great dress. Yeah. yeah. No, I remember Dolce & Gabbana. I mean, they, they were fantastic in mm. those pencil dresses, weren't they? But you did have to really expose yourself. So that must have been really hard for you. Out of your yeah, concept. it was like, you know, who do you think you are? Gina Lola Brigida. But, you know, <laughs> but it was, it was amazing. Yeah. And it opened doors. And mm. so did you start to think about other ways of dressing after that? Yeah, I started to get a little bit more brave, I think. And now... I mean, I've really, you because know, I, I do put a lot of my outfits on Instagram because people like my clothes, my husband hates hashtag and well, stuff like that. We are definitely going to have to get into that. <laughs> but, um, and now though, if somebody says, oh, those trousers are revolting, I actually, I just don't care. I don't care anymore, you know, because I, because I know I like it. So that's, and that's fine. Well, let's talk about clothes my husband hates. So apart from being screamingly funny, <laughs> it's basically about, 
the shift in perception that clothes have to look good for someone else yeah. instead of good for you, right? Yeah, totally. And I mean, you know, look. Tell me how it started. Oh, wait, honestly, he just, he's very funny, my husband. He is just very funny. And we, and our relationship is largely predicated on taking the mick out of each other. It has been for 23 years. But, um, and he just started, I, it started with years ago, I had this Mark Jacobs jacket. It was a white denim jacket that had like military band sort of stitching on it. And he used to, whenever I put it on, he'd call me Buck Rogers in the 25th century. It was like, he was, he'd say, oh, Buck's back today, you know, like, and it just, so, and I was so used to these sort of like asides from him. And then Instagram came along and I had on a jumpsuit one day and he said something about, oh, you know, what time does your shift at CBB start today? And I just put it on Instagram and I put, I think it was the first time I ever used a hashtag and I just liked the alliteration of, husband's hate husband hates or close my husband hates and it was I was quite new to Instagram but it was like the most reacted to post I'd ever had and so I started doing it a bit more regularly and I said and people started really liking it and then I thought I better just check I'm not ripping this off from someone and so when I clicked on the hashtag the only other post was like three years previously from this one account that had like about three likes so I so I thought I guess I have kind of invented it and now it's this whole thing yeah now it's like a movement on there. I should have copyrighted it. But, well, there's that. There was that yeah. great, very successful blog, Man Repeller, as well. Wasn't yes, it? she yeah. was really good at that. So. And then, yeah, exactly. So I don't know where I. I don't know. I, it was just the husband hates things that I. I just that's what made me think of the hashtag. But but now I also have trolled by my teen because she is unbelievable. <laughs> uh, some of the things she says to me. So, yeah. But also, I think what has emancipated all of us into is wearing the clothes that we damn well want. Yeah, like I noticed you posted a pair of um, bright green dungarees the other day. I mean, he he didn't really say anything. He just collapsed giggling. (laughs) And and I said, and he said, well, you know, I wasn't going to go, wow, you look really hot in those. You know, it's like, it's just, I love them. Yes, I love a pair of dungarees too. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, they're they're not men clothes, are they? No. And I mean, he's just... I love my husband dearly, but he's he's a basic man in that, you know, he would just like multiples of that Dolce & Gabbana black dress or red underwear or <laughs> nudity and everything else sucks. Yeah, but I do still have friends who say, oh, I love what you're wearing, but I mean, my you know, Sansa hates me and stuff like that. So I just, and I just think, God, I must be the worst wife because I don't care. Well, I think it's true that women have to dress for lots of different roles, don't they? Yeah. Um, you know, you, you're, a, you're a parent, you're a partner, you're a boss, you're yeah. a colleague, you're a mate. And those have different fashion channels, don't they? No. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. Maybe they used to for me. I don't know. I remember I did have a phase uh, when I started working at You Magazine the edit- as the editor there at the Mail on Sunday. So that's where you went after Glamour. Yeah. And I remember thinking, it's a newspaper. Got to really, you know, got to rein it in. And I just honestly felt like I was wearing somebody else's wet mohair coat for about, I think it was about six weeks where I did like really sort of like corporate suits and you know, I'd heard a rumour that the, the bosses at the mail didn't like women to wear trousers and, you know, stuff like that. And then I, but it was when I sort of thought, oh, I can't do this anymore. I haven't got the clothes. And I went to work in a bright purple suit. My boss wet himself laughing. <laughs> 
And I said, oh, God, is it? And he, and he said, you know, I lo-, he said, I love that you're so magazine-y. I love that. And I just thought, okay, I just, it's just ridiculous not being myself. It's ridiculous. I was a SmartWorks client in 2020, and this is my story. I came to SmartWorks at a really challenging point in my career path and had been referred by an NHS support service. I was feeling quite unconfident, which for me was really unusual, um, usually having been an independent, career-minded woman, and that was something I really wanted to get back to. I had a limited understanding of who SmartWorks were or what they did before going to my first appointment but I just knew that they were going to help me prep for an interview and maybe get some new clients. The SmartWorks space was an absolute oasis. It was calm, it was beautiful, and I was greeted by a very glamorous team. I had a dressing, which was really fun and boosted my confidence. It was amazing how a new outfit could make me feel, you know, much more confident and more beautiful. And after that, I had a coaching session, which was amazing and I still use the learning from it today. They made me feel really welcome and treated me as an equal which was so valuable and I left feeling empowered and that bit stronger all in space of just a couple of hours. I don't know how they do it and then I went to my interview and on arrival they commented on how lovely my outfit was and when I left their office I passed a woman in the corridor and she commented on my trousers as well. Overall, the SmartWorks experience really empowered me to be sure of myself and to know my worth, which is huge. Now, listen, we're going to have to talk about the week on a wall because actually this has changed my life. Oh. So, I, I mean, I used to, in the, in the sort of throes of, uh, you know, full-on job, small children, go to sleep on Sunday night trying to plan my outfits in my head. And yeah. you have formalised this by posting on Instagram your seven-day working week in outfits. Five. Five-day yeah, 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 five yeah, yeah. working week in outfits. I have no clue what I'm going to wear on Saturday. <laughs> the joy. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's a wonderful, amazing thing because it does sort of give you a clue as to how you should pre-plan wardrobe and how you should um, think about your clothes. But um, it makes me think, Joe, that maybe you are over-scheduled, over-organised. <laughs> Oh God, if only that was true. <laughs> um, no, it's, I love it. I, I've always, I think again, I think it was the fashion shows that I've f- for the longest time had this habit that I didn't even realize I'd developed where I would have a ticking, ticking tape in my head going, okay, so Monday I've got this. Okay. So yeah, but right. I've got to go out Thursday night after work. So if I wear that, then I don't have to get changed. You know, so, uh, so I would, and then I don't know, I just for a laugh one time, put it all out on Instagram where in my head I was doing it anyway so I thought well I may as well get it out and I I actually find that if I haven't had time to spend that half an hour to an hour doing that at some point on the weekend my mornings are just so annoying because it's like suddenly that I can't find the one top that goes with that skirt that I know is ironed do you know what I mean? so, it's so like, do you get them all out and hang them ready yeah iron the lot and it saves so much mental space in my head during the week. But it also, it's um, curbed my shopping addiction because I'm like, I'm remembering stuff I've got. I'm thinking about, I'm going through and thinking, how can I reinvent what I've got? And 
You're basically styling your wardrobe. Yeah, and I just I just really enjoy doing it. I mean, it's like some people say to me, oh, it's so stressful. So I wouldn't do it if it was stressful. It, I find it de-stressing to do it. And um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's just fun. So here at SmartWorks, we have what's called a second dressing, which is after you've come in and you've got your outfit and the, your interview training and you've been for your interview and you've got the job, you can come back and get in a second dressing, a capsule wardrobe for your working work. Amazing. Yeah. And that's based a lot on what you said in your first dressing you like, the, the outfit that you chose and everything. Um, so I'm curious to know what you think works in a capsule wardrobe. How should you build that wardrobe? I think that, it again, I think for the women that you're helping at SmartWorks, you're probably having to think largely also about what's office appropriate, right? If it's an office job. Yes. So I think that what works in a capsule wardrobe is the stuff that I think probably sounds boring to a lot of people, but it's the really well-fitting trouser suit. It's the fantastic white shirt. It's all of those things that you can buy and they will last you for years and years and years. And you can, I've got, you know, I mean, I think that I've got a big wardrobe. I don't think there's any hiding that. Um, that's what 20 years in fashion magazines will do. But even within that, I've got the perennials that get mixed and matched with all with, you know, maybe more trend led pieces. So there's great trouser suits, skirts that I go back to again and again, shirts, jackets and things that I just think are really fundamental and a really great um, trench coat, a really good coat. If I'm spending money, I do prioritize shoes. I just think you really do get what you pay for with shoes. And so if I can buy them well, I will. Because again, you know, something like a pair of Gucci shoes, I've got two or three pairs and they're, some of them are like 10 years old and they still look the day, the way they did when I bought them. So in terms of economy, that's actually turned out quite well. Whereas at the time my husband would be like, how much did you spend on it? You know, it's like, but 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 I wear them all the time. So, yeah. And I noticed that you're very good and brave with colour. Oh, I love colour. Having graduated out of your black trousers. Yes, because I used to be really afraid of colour. And I find that it's just better for me. I'm very pale. I don't look that amazing in black. I don't wear a lot of black. Because I'm just obsessed with print and color. Mm. I love your dress. I love that you know your multicolored dress. And see, I'm already looking at that and thinking, ah, oh, orange and green. I need to think about a way I can put that together. Do you know what I mean? So mm. I, I'm just I'm just obsessed with color. Love mm. it. Yeah. And today you're wearing a pink and red, and of course we always used to think that pink and red couldn't go together, didn't we? I know. Who made that rule? Who made this? And blue and green. They said blue and green. Blue like and that. green is my favorite, and I've never understood that because I always it's not today, but on a sunny day. When you look up at a brilliant blue sky and it's and it's punctuated with like bright green leaves from trees and that's nature and it's so beautiful. So who said blue and green don't go together? You well, need to talk to God about that. <laughs> Let me tell you. Yeah. Red and green, that's the other one no one's apparently supposed to wear, but they look great. Yeah, they mm. do. Christmas is there for a reason. Hell yes. <laughs> yes. So, Joe, what happened was... You suddenly surprised us all a couple of, no, maybe less than a year ago. I can't remember. About a year ago. About a year ago. And said, I am not going to work in magazines anymore. I'm going to go and do something completely different. Mm. And I hope you don't mind me saying, but you uh, are basically around your midlife. Yeah. So 
this was, I suppose, the classic midlife career change. Crisis. (laughs) (laughs) So first of all, what brought that about? I think I was just, I, I got to 52 and I loved my job at U Magazine. I really did. But I could see that I'd kind of taken it as far as I it could go. I wasn't going to be able to sort of like not not really allowed to change it much more than I had done. And I could have sat there, um, but I could just see that I, it wasn't it it, it wasn't going to be stimulating in the same way. And so I started to think, you know, I've been doing this a long time. It's only we all know the print industry only gets harder you know it's tougher to make money it's very very interesting all the machinations at vogue at the moment with what's happening there um i think that's a lot of um to do with the fact that everybody in print needs to cut costs you know all of those things because the basically the way print used to work was lots of advertising money would yeah. come in people would pay for magazines and now less people buy magazines because we're on social media yep. and advertisers have other places to go. Exactly, yeah. All of those good things. <laughs> um, I sort of thought maybe it's time to just think about a- another way for you to make a living because I thought I could sit here for the next five years and then I'll be 55, 56, 57 and then it'll be even harder to try and do something else. So I had, and I'd also had the context of, I think I stayed at Glamour too long because I was scared because I couldn't think of another way to think of myself. So I didn't want to make that mistake again. I didn't want to stay somewhere because I was scared to move. So I made myself do it. And then I, so I, I resigned from that job without having really any clear plan. Oh, really? You didn't have the other job in the bag? No. <gasps> That's um, brave. And then it came along and it just seemed like an ideal thing because it's on the surface I know I'm now the CEO of a charity called Children with Cancer UK and on the surface I know that that seems completely foreign but it's actually what they need what they wanted me to come in and do is quite comparable with with what I do it's like you know sort of like rebranding telling the story um, getting it more well known getting more celebrity ambassadors on board. That's kind of, that's the bread and butter of my, it's a part-time role, it's three days a week. And around that, I do other media stuff. So I haven't left media altogether. Mm. So yeah. And how did you find, you know, at that stage in your life, leaving your comfort zone, walking into a new industry? How are you coping with that challenge? I found it um, really exciting. It's definitely been a huge learning curve, um, but yeah, I, I mean, it's really weird. I don't. I certainly don't feel like I know everything about how to be CEO yet. Um, but I'm finding that all the plans we've got. I spent. I spent a year feeling like I was working in the back room there, really, because a lot of stuff that I want to do hasn't really been possible until we've had the rebrand out there, and that took a long time because that had to be really carefully considered and, and done well. So I feel like towards the end of this year is when the the results of all the stuff I've been working on will start to be much more visible. And did you walk into a team that were up for it or did you have to make changes? I mean, there's been some natural ebb and flow as there, are, there is in any job. But um, I think that most people have been really excited about it and excited to have um, somebody who is in a position to get... I mean, the thing is, this charity is 35 years old and it's raised 
hundreds of millions of pounds in a space where there was not much investment in childhood cancer research. Um, and it always amazes me that actually its profile is quite low. So I think that there, there's a lot of excitement for us being able to change that. Mm. We're bringing in, you know, a lot of people from my old life are now working with me on stuff for this campaign and for this charity. So, yeah, mm. it's interesting. Mm. I'm interested that you draw all of the comparisons, but I wonder if, you know, when women reach their 50s, things do change actually you know, it feels sometimes like a new chapter is opening. Like I've got a great friend who describes it as your third act. Mm. Um, and I see a lot of women at this stage in their lives reinventing themselves and doing new things. Yeah. Was that part of your consideration? Um, it probably was in a sort of like a, a subliminal way. I think that I just thought it was, I don't know, I've, I've got all this energy still. And I felt like maybe I was maybe doing myself a disservice by not just seeing what other adventures I could have. Do you mm. know what I mean? So, mm. yeah, I think that's probably it. And I think that, I don't know, I just see so many women my age around me now who, I mean, Lisa Snowden is a good friend of mine and she's just written a book called Just Getting Started. And that that's how I feel. That's like, it just feels like, you know, I used to sort of, when I was younger, think no way would I ever reach the wizened old age of 50 and now I'm 53 and I, I feel I don't know I, just, I feel physically better than I did when I was in my 20s you know there's it's just so many things that come together and we just need to be, keep being visible I think I think there's a lot of talk about how women become invisible but I think that people like you and me who have the profile and the platform have a responsibility to to not be invisible yeah so yeah so even responsibility it's like it's yeah. quite good fun right yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, well exactly yeah. yeah so you know it's just like i just want to keep i just want to still have this energy so uh we've talked a lot about your successes um now i also want to talk about something which you have been very open about which is um when your time at glamour came to an end it wasn't of your own volition mm. and you were asked to leave. Um, and I wonder how it felt to you to be made redundant. Oh, honestly, at that point, it wasn't my first time at that rodeo anyway. Um, I'd been made redundant when I was 28 from a job. Um, but I think that it was actually kind of a relief um, as you know, as I've, spoken about it a fair bit and I wrote that I just didn't know how else to define myself or to see myself I couldn't figure out what to do next and that's a reason why I'd say for the last three or four years I stayed there um so even as, though you thought it might be coming to an end yeah as well you know as painful as it was yeah you know, I wouldn't have had the courage to up and leave so when that decision was made for me, it helped in quite a few ways. It doesn't mean it wasn't painful. And, you know, a, a lot of people lost their job at that time. It wasn't just me. And you feel responsible for that, no matter how much, you know, it isn't really your fault. You still feel a responsibility. And, you know, and it, and it takes time to heal. I loved that job. Again, something else I've written about a lot is like, we're, particularly as women, we're encouraged to, find the work that you love, you know, go find something that you're really passionate about. And if you do, that's wonderful. But it does mean 
that it's the end of a relationship that really means something to you when it ends and that takes time to get over. So, but um, honestly, it's not about being sad that it ended. It's smiling that it ever happened. It was brilliant. It was a fantastic job for the longest time. And it has put me in the position where I am today, where people like your good self want to have me on your podcast. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, it's, I don't know. It's just, I'm not bitter about it. Well, I mean, lots of us have been made redundant more than once, twice, yeah. several times. And it's it's never an enjoyable experience. And it's, you know, one of those things that can rip your guts out, you know, it can remove yeah. your confidence. And I think yeah. it's, sometimes it's useful to understand how other people get through it. I mean, it's honestly, it's as painful as it is, it, it is, it's it's just a business decision. And I've been on both sides of that where I've had to be the person making those decisions. So maybe I've got a, a more rounded feeling about it than other people. I don't know. But um, I, I think as well, I had my daughter would have been 12 at the time. And I felt like I needed to be a really good example to her that sometimes bad things happen and it's just how you how you deal with it how did you deal with it in the immediate aftermath i threw myself into work meetings and running around town having largely pointless meetings with people that for things that did not amount to work and i exhausted myself which i shouldn't have done but and people said have a break you need a rest but i wouldn't listen so yeah i probably I think what has that happened in October and then in the February I was just like you need to just do nothing for a few weeks and then I decided to do nothing for a few weeks and then got offered the U magazine job so I had about three weeks of doing nothing and then back into it <laughs> so so you know I mean I'm probably not the best example I, I haven't got any really incredibly wise words to say on it it's, it's a process and you just have to let yourself have time to be hurt and to get through it but it's it's it isn't the end of the world it's just it's just a business decision so your daughter now is coming to an age where she's starting to think about work mm. um what is your advice to her the advice i give to her is the advice i give to um any young people who ask me for it is to be just to how can i put it Particularly when, like, you know, people used to come to me for magazine advice, and it's like, you know, they all want to get a job on Vogue. They all want, that's that's the gold standard. That's the big fashion magazine, but not everyone's going to get their first job on Vogue. You know, so it's like it's about looking for the opportunities and making the most of them where they happen to be right now. Um, so, if the local animal welfare league magazine is the one that has an opening <laughs> go and do it and throw yourself into it and be that person who they just think is amazing and keen and so I think that that's uh, my advice to her is to be willing um curious and have have a really great attitude whether it's interning or that job on a Saturday that you hate and because people will notice when your attitude and your willingness to work and learn is there. It's very interesting, isn't it? You never quite know 
what a job is going to give you. I remember like one of my favorite jobs I ever did was waitressing in a pizza restaurant mm. because I really learned how to deal with people. Yeah. And that's the thing. Even the job you hate is going to give you those moments and that skill set and the context to get you to somewhere else. Yeah. People sometimes talk about building a career castle, and I've just been reminded about that from what you said, Joe, which is that you can have a vision in your head of where you want to go, but you can't always see the path yeah. to how you're going to get there. And that idea that you sort of follow a journey. Yeah, and I think that people at the start of that journey, looking at, say, people like you and me, I think they forget that we didn't come out of a box having you know i didn't i i didn't land on the earth as a magazine editor it's like every, like everybody else i've taken that journey and so you just have to be present in where you are now and make the most of where you are now and it's snakes and ladders isn't it yeah oh 100% 100% yeah always yeah so where next joe yeah i don't know well i'm really hungry right now so i'm going to get a sandwich um i don't know I'm very know. intrigued by the podcast that you have just launched. Oh, yeah. Which is around fame. Now, this yes. is you going back to your pop star crush from when you were a teenager, <laughs> isn't it? Is uh, it just an excuse to meet celebrities again? <laughs> no, it's because I'm really, really interested in the psychology of fame and, you know, what I've seen from people and different people's behaviours and the way people handle it themselves. And, you know, I think on occasions I've had compassion for people who you know, they're behaving really badly, but I can, I can see that it's insecurity or fear or, you know, so I, it's those things that I really like to, um, get into with people. And I just, you know, as you may have guessed from today, I like talking and I, I, I really enjoy doing podcasts and, and having my own podcast. And it was that it was just the subject matter that I thought, well, I'm really interested in it. And hopefully I've got enough context to, make it happen with some really interesting people who's, who's your favorite so far um well amy schumer was amazing um jamila jamil reliably talkative and and erudite Catherine ryan was really really fun and i've got i'm doing sophie ellis bextor on friday and i think she's got some really she's got a unique experience i haven't really been able to explore with anyone yet is that she grew up in a famous household mm -hmm. coming out in the second series which i'm hoping to launch later this month i've got danny minogue who's been famous since she was like eight years old and your uh, first interviewee exactly so yeah so she owed me no, <laughs> no, so i i did i did hound her bless danny um but so yeah but my one my holy grail that got away as i've been trying so hard to interview a korean pop star <gasps> why k-pop oh they're so pretty. Um, I just, I find it really joyful, escapist, fashion forward, creative. I think that Korean Vogue is the most creative, beautiful looking Vogue in the world at the moment. And I, and I just find that whole culture really fascinating. And I find the whole work ethic behind their pop stars absolutely just riveting. And I tried so hard. There's this one guy who I know is brilliant at at English. And they were, for months, they've been so responsive and saying, oh, you know, and asking all the right questions. And they, last week they said he hasn't got time. I wanted to cry. It'll come, Joe. Just I don't, hope so. Just yes, let's believe. Up. I need to manifest this. Yes, it's your yeah. career castle. You yeah, yeah, yeah. You see there's a K-pop star at the yeah. top of it. Maybe he saw my Instagram and thought, oh, God, no, she's such a weirdo. <laughs> but I just... 
I was actually going to ask you what it was about K-pop that attracted, because I know you're slightly obsessed with it. Is it the work ethic? That's part of it. It's definitely a huge part of the fascination because those kids have been, I mean, they, they train them the way other company countries train gymnasts, relentless hours. You know, there's one guy who's the most incredible dancer I've ever seen who, um, was sort of like 13 or 14 and going to school all day and then pretty much killing himself dancing until like three and four in the morning rehearsing and then getting up and going to school again the next day. It's like, and you know, he's very successful now, but I also wonder how many have done that and actually haven't become pop stars. It's, Mm. it's really, there's definitely about 500 documentaries to be made there. It's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Make one for us, please, Jeff. All right, I will. Yeah. So I'd just like to end on SmartWorks is about restoring confidence and, and using the power of clothes to, to, to give women confidence so they can go on and, and do the things that they want to do and get the job that they want to, want to get. Um, and as someone who's experienced downs as well as ups and very much on and up right now, is there anything that you can share with us about what to do when your confidence is on the floor? That's a really good question. Um, I think that it's it's in those moments that you really, really need support from friends if possible. You really, you, the, the worst thing you can do is cower away and try and pretend that you don't need that support. Don't lie to yourself. If you really are feeling that low, you need to talk to somebody about it. And then I think you get an objective perspective. You know, in in the context of career confidence, I think charities like SmartWorks are an incredible place to reach out to because you've got a phenomenal team of people here who know how to bring to life your confidence through the power of clothes. But I think that when I'm feeling like that, I really, really, I need to lean on my friendship support group who can talk sense into you or just, you know, sometimes you might just need, sometimes you might just need to say to someone, can you tell me something good about myself? Cause I'm feeling really low right now. And I think things like that are really, really important. Don't suffer in silence. I I am never embarrassed to ask for help when I need it. And I think that's really important. Jo, thank you very much indeed. You've been listening to Fashion as a Force for Good, a podcast by SmartWorks. If you'd like to find out more about SmartWorks and the wonderful work they do, or make a donation, or volunteer, or book a coaching or styling appointment, Visit smartworks.org.uk or follow at Smartworks Charity on Instagram. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening so you don't miss a thing. Join us next time when we'll be sitting down with another stylish face to chat through their style journey.